The Dalai Lama often begins his public talks with the words, everybody wants happiness, nobody wants suffering. And with this, he immediately makes a connection with the audience, be that hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of people. And so then, it seems like everybody thinks, yes, he's right. Me too. I want happiness. I don't want suffering. How does he know? <laughs> In July of this year, I attended some public teachings by the Dalai Lama in Germany, in Hamburg. And there, the teachings were headed under the title of Learning Peace. And so, the Dalai Lama started slightly different saying, everybody wants peace. <laughs> so whether it be happiness or peace or fulfillment, satisfaction, what do we normally do in order to attain these states? Very often it is through the gratification of the senses things like listening to music or you know, listening to tapes from the library or having our favorite cup of coffee or tea or meeting with a dear friend, going out for a walk in nature or sitting in the sun and looking at the trees, reading some nice poetry or whatever. So in general, the gratification of the senses depend on certain external conditions, circumstances. At other times, that depends on internal um, states, mental states. That can be fantasies or uh, altered states of mind like the jhanas. Ordinary people, and the Buddha called them the uninstructed worldlings, do not see the danger lying in this way of gratification. These uninstructed worldlings or ordinary people, they only see the immediate happiness or satisfaction that comes about by gratifying the desires of their senses. The Buddha said at one stage, the Blessed One has stated how sensual pleasures provide little gratification. They provide much suffering and much despair, and how great is the danger in them. And for many people, this is difficult to hear and understand. Like, how can looking at the beautiful scenery lead to suffering and misery? And moreover, they are sure that when they look at the trees or the beautiful scenery, 
they do so without any desire. They are sure that with them there is no attachment involved when they do so. And therefore, in their case, looking at the beautiful scenery will definitely not lead to much suffering or uh, misery. However, the Buddha stated that he said that one can engage in sensual pleasures without sensual desires, without thoughts of sensual desire, that is impossible. Well, that's what's, what the Buddha said. So today, let's have a closer look at desire, craving, wanting, or attachment, and how we can, can deal with these states. First of all, let's ask the question, how does desire, craving, and attachment feel like when they arise in our meditation practice, when we become aware of some desire, some attachment? How does it actually feel? Or what is the experience of it? What is the immediate, direct experience? We can notice that with desire or attachment, the mind firmly sticks to the object, sticks to the object of desire or attachment. So this stickiness is desires or attachments nature or characteristic. I think it was two weeks ago in a talk, uh, or last week, saying that the nature of all forms of greed, wanting, is stickiness, and it's compared to a piece of meat sticking on a hot iron plate. And when we observe desire or craving or attachment, <clears throat> we also come to realize that in this desire, there is a strong pull, a strong pull to act out on this desire or craving, to act out on it in order to get the sensual gratification. And so this can be in regard to food or drinks, in regard to physical sensations, if it's very cold and uh, we feel cold, then the desire for putting on some warm clothes or to go into a warm room is there, so we act on that. Or attachment to our view or opinion uh, makes that we engage in an, uh, in an argument with somebody else because we are uh, defending our uh, view or opinion. One way to avoid the pitfall in engaging in sensual pleasures caused by sensual desires 
is to live an extremely ascetic life. For example, to live in a very remote place, in a rustic hut with no electricity, sleeping on a very thin mat, having just one meal a day, and having very few or almost no possessions. Let me share this story uh, with you. There was an ascetic who possessed nothing except the robe he was wearing and an arms bowl. And his arms bowl was made from a dried, empty uh, gourd. And his teaching was a teaching of non-attachment. And this ascetic had become very famous. When the king heard about this famous ascetic, he called him uh, to the palace and appointed him his teacher. And so every afternoon, the king uh, went into a quiet corner of his garden and listened to the teaching of this ascetic. And the ascetic made it very often a point that non-attachment was the true way to happiness and peace. And so one day, as the two of them were sitting in this quiet corner of the royal garden, a servant came running and shouted, His Majesty, His Majesty, the palace is on fire. Please come quickly and give orders. The king just looked up to the servant and very calmly said, my servant, don't you see that I'm having teachings from my uh, great teacher? Don't bother me now. You go back to the palace and attend to the fire. However, the ascetic immediately jumped up and said, What? The palace is on flames? I left my arms bowl in the palace. <laughs> So the point is not so much how many or how little possessions we have, it's rather how we relate to these things and how we relate to things, material possessions. Um, this also includes our body and our mind. So, in my case, I can say, I don't have a house, I don't have a car, I don't have a dog. But still, um, I can say, I have some ropes, <laughs> this is my hand, these are my notes, or my body feels heavy, or my mind is peaceful, or in my room I have a laptop, <laughs> or I have sunglasses, they are in my shoulder bag. So whenever you use the terms me, mine, or I, it's mostly an expression 
that includes some attachment, gross forms of attachment or subtle forms of attachment. I think that we are all familiar with the statement of the Buddha that nothing can be considered to be me, mine, or I. And in regard to form, material things, and this includes our body and material possessions, the Buddha said, any kind of form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And so the same applies to the other aggregates, namely to feelings, perceptions, formations and consciousness. So if things, material possessions, my body, my mind, if things are not mine, then to whom do they belong? Well, actually, if you put this question in this way, um, it's based on the wrong assumption that there is something or somebody that possesses these things or has some ownership over these things. So rather the question is to ask, then how do these things come into being? How do they come into existence? And again, uh, the Buddha had a very wise reply saying, when this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that comes not to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. This is the universal formula of dependent origination. So it's, it clearly states that things exist, that there are things, and that things arise and pass away. But nobody can possess these things because they come into existence according to certain causes and conditions and not according to our uh, desires and attachments. So it's not wrong to have things or to use things, but we should, do, we should do so without clinging or attachment. The king seems to have learned his lesson very well, even outdoing his teacher. Although he lived in great luxury and had his every wish fulfilled, he did not seem to be attached to any of these things. 
the king had been able to abandon um, the craving for and attachment to these things. And therefore, his mind was not shaken or upset by the news that the palace was on fire. Earlier this year, when I was in Burma, a friend of mine came to Burma in mid-January. She had planned to stay a couple of days in Yangon before coming out to the meditation center. So after she had arrived in the country, she called me from Yangon saying that she arrived but not her suitcases. And so she said that the following day she needed to go back to the airport to see whether or not her luggage had arrived. And she also told me to give my uh, regards to Sayadaw and that uh, she would be coming in a day or two, hopefully, with her luggage. And so I went to the Sayadaw and told him. And he simply said, never mind. When she was born, she didn't bring any baggage either. <laughs> and likewise, we have to leave all our baggage behind when we die. We come with nothing and we go with nothing. But during our life, we carry around so much baggage. We are attached to so many things. Aren't we crazy? <laughs> Isn't this a little bit insane. During one of his visits to the United States, Sayadaw Upandita said, in this country, here in the States, there are lots of sensual pleasures freely available. People are pulled down by the gravity of sensual pleasures. When people let their actions run freely, their mouths run freely, their minds run freely, it doesn't take much pull for them to fall in. Even with a slight gravitational pull, they dive into sensual pleasures. Isn't that true? So instead of letting our actions run freely, our mouth run freely and our minds run freely, we have to apply an antidote, which is, as you might guess or already know, mindfulness, awareness. We need to become increasingly aware of what we are doing, what we are saying, and most importantly, what we are thinking. And so when we uh, pay attention to that, then first of all, we become aware of the habitual patterns that run our lives. Because so much of what we say, what we do, or what we think runs on automatic pilot. And so, this discovery can be uh, rather shocking or painful. 
For example, many years ago, I discovered that uh, very often my hand would just go up to my chin and feel the, the short hairs that were growing here. I didn't know that for a long time that I was just doing this thing and feeling my hair. <laughs> or I also discovered that my mind uh, would be lost in thoughts of how to clean and tidy up a place that was too messy or too dirty uh, for me. So when I uh, started to discover these mechanisms of the body or the mind, it did not mean that they immediately stopped. But over time, and by repeatedly being aware of these ingrained habits or processes, then they started to happen less frequently. And there was also a less compelling force in these uh, actions. So when we observe our mind, then the second step is to recognize the underlying mental state of an activity, an action, of something we do. And paying attention to that, it, ba it basically boils, boils down to craving, clinging, wanting, attachment, wanting this, not wanting that, craving for this, craving to get away from something, attachment to things, attachment to body, to thoughts, to emotions, feelings, opinions and views, etc. So then it is very important that we observe this pulling force of wanting or desire. And it can be actually very interesting to simply be aware and observe this pull or this force of craving or desire of attachment. It does not much, it doesn't matter so much what the mind is craving for or what it is attached to. We do not need to pay much attention to the object of our craving or attachment. Much more important is to be aware of and feel the force, uh, the strength, the pull of this craving, uh, desire, or attachment. At one stage in my meditation practice, I realized this strong compulsive force of thoughts. And it was in this, that way that I realized it. Although I was clearly aware that the thought was going on, and although I wanted to let go of it, I just could not do so. The attachment to the thought and its obsessing force was so strong that I first had to think the thought to its end, or at least to think the phrase to its end. Only then would my mind be kind enough to let go of it.
And so in these uh, moments, it became very clear and very obvious uh, that desire, craving, attachment, that all these forms of greed, uh, that they are of a very sticky nature. And last week in my talk, I also illustrated it, uh, how Salon is meditation master. Uh, showed the sticky nature uh, of all forms of greed. So it is very important and actually essential that we understand and see this sticky nature of desire, craving and attachment. And the deeper our understanding is, then the stronger becomes our wish to reduce and uh, abandon it because we so clearly see and understand how it causes dissatisfaction, misery and all sorts of problems. So to be mindful of it, to observe it in order to understand its nature is the first and most important way of dealing with desire, clinging, craving, or attachment. However, sometimes we get completely stuck in some craving, or we get completely carried away by some desire. And sometimes we are so much sucked into that desire or attachment that we react unskillfully and this only pulls us further down uh, into negativity. And so to avoid this or to pull the emergency brake, there are a few approaches that can be helpful. And so I will present them in two groups. The first group is a couple of reflections that we can do. These reflections help reduce our craving, uh, attachment or desire. And the second group is a few ways um, of diverting the mind from the original object. So first of all, to these reflections that can help reduce attachment desire or attach, uh, craving. And these reflections can be done on a regular basis. It can be either early morning in the first sitting meditation, or it can be in the last sitting meditation of the day, or uh, whenever uh, it fits into your daily routine. And the first of these reflections is the reflection on impermanence. The Buddha said, all conditioned phenomena are impermanent. And so this applies to material things, to our body, and also to our mind. They are all inherently impermanent. That means they do not last, 
they are ever-changing in their nature. And in regard to material things, there are the so-called five enemies that can cause the destruction or the loss of these material possessions. And these five enemies are fire, water, thieves, confiscation through a government, and disloyal children, also mentioned by the Buddha. So the first, the loss or destruction through fire. I know a number of people who have lost all their uh, belongings, their houses, through fire because their house was burned down. A friend of mine in Switzerland lost everything in that way. Uh, A Burmese woman I know from Mandalay many years ago. At that time, most of the houses were still made out of bamboo or wood with thatched roofs. And so during one of the hot seasons, as it was very hot, very dry, uh, a little fire immediately broke out in a huge fire and destroyed a part of Mandalay. Or an Australian uh, yogi whom I met, uh, she lost everything and uh, her house through a bushfire, which is not uncommon in Australia. The destruction or loss caused through water, like we all remember the big destruction uh, caused by a tsunami some years ago, or the Hurricane Katrina, who brought much damage to New Orleans. Loss and destruction through thieves. I think many of us have lost things in that way, uh, that things uh, were stolen. Confiscation through the government, this may be not so common in Western democratic countries, but again, in Burma in the mid-90s, the uh, government confiscated many houses um, of people living in downtown Yangon because they wanted it for their own uh, use. And so then they just confiscated the houses and these people were given a shabby piece of land at the outskirts uh, of Yangon. And the last point, these loyal children. (laughs) can happen that kids are stealing money from their parents' uh, purses. And here in Western countries, many people have insurances uh, against fire, water, or against theft. Uh, But even having an insurance cannot prevent the loss or destruction of our material things. They only 
um, people can only get uh, some money in order to get uh, acquire new things, but the original things, most of the time, they are destroyed or lost. So even if none of these five enemies can destroy or cause a loss of our material possessions, these things are still of an impermanent nature. And these things, these material possessions, can stop existing or stop working at any time. So never take it for granted that they will be yours for the rest of your life. Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai meditation master, he would look at the new glass that was offered to him and see it as already broken. And so then he could use it as long as it was unbroken. But it didn't disturb his mind when the glass eventually broke. So to reflect on the impermanent nature of our material possessions in particular is a powerful antidote to craving, clinging and attachment. And of course we also can extend this reflection to our body, to our mind and even to our life. When we repeatedly reflect on the fact that we have to part from what is dear to us, then the mind starts loosening the grip to these things. And so then the mind starts to see the futility of clinging to something that we actually cannot own it in an absolute way. A reflection that helps reduce desire and attachment to the body is the reflection on non-beauty of our body. The Pali word for it is asuba. Sometimes it's also translated as the reflection on the loathsomeness of the body. Our attachment to the body is quite big and strong. This physical mass of flesh and bones and blood and urine and excrement is the object of so much clinging and attachment because the body is also a major part of our identification of who we are. A lot of time and energy as well as money is invested in our body. We bathe it, we feed it, we empty our bladder and bowels, we comb our hair, we nicely shape our fingernails, we paint and decorate our face, we take out this body for walks, we take it to the gym, or we treat this body with needles, massages, balms, or cucumbers, and whatnot. <laughs> Some of it is absolutely necessary and life-sustaining, but some of it is completely unnecessary, a waste of time and money. 
Even if we manage to have our body looking very young, fit and attractive at the age of 85, you finally have to leave it behind and it will either become rotten within a short time or turn into ashes in no time. If there were something inherently beautiful in our body, then it would need to stay like that for the rest of our life. But the fact is, it doesn't. Our beautiful hair is no longer so beautiful after one week of not washing it. Some years ago, a very dear Dhamma friend of myself and Mimi, who is my Burmese friend, came to our meditation center in Burma with the intention to ordain as a temporary nun. And Mimi thought that it was a great shame to shave off all her beautiful uh, blonde hair. In Burmese language, blonde hair is translated as golden hair because they don't have a word for blonde. Because in Burma, as in uh, other Asian countries, people don't have blonde hairs, they only have black hair. Our friend didn't care, but Mimi could not understand how our friend could forsake her beautiful golden hair. Before I started to shave my friend's head, Mimi said that she was going to put away the beautiful golden hair and keep it forever. <laughs> and traditionally, when the head of a prospect nun or monk is shaved, the hair is collected on a piece of white cloth that is held by two people uh, below the head. And so, as I was shaving the head, little bundles of wet hair mixed with some soap fell onto this white cloth. And by the time I had finished shaving her head, a rather disgusting looking heap of hair had collected on the white piece of cloth. And so I finished and I looked over to Mimi and said, now it's yours. Keep it for the rest of your life. But now Mimi had no more desire to keep it. <laughs> and so she took the cloth and threw away the hair at the foot of a tree, as it is traditionally done. So our notion of beauty is a very arbitrary one conditioned by various external and internal factors. And even a thing that is considered to be beautiful by many people has no indestructible beauty in it because that very thing is also subject to impermanence. And so with the dissolution of that thing, the beauty is gone as well. So, the reflection on the non-beauty of the body can be done with either the so-called charnel ground contemplation 
or with the contemplation on the 32 parts of the body. As we no longer have charnel grounds at the outskirts of villages or towns where the corpses are just thrown uh, into and then they just rot away, um, it's somewhat difficult to imagine the nine stages of a decaying corpse. The contemplation on the 32 parts of the body is a reflection that we can do more easily. So in the Buddhist scriptures, the body is divided into 32 parts. And so then these 32 parts are systematically recited and at the same time one tries to get a mental image of that particular part of the body. Some of you might, uh, might be familiar with this reflection, some of you might not. And so maybe just let's do a little exercise. As I mentioned these 32 parts of the body, try to focus your attention on that particular part. You may close your eyes if you wish. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, nasal mucus, synovial fluid, urine. So this is what you are made of. Now we are going to do it once more and this time try to imagine that you take each of these parts and put it in front of you, making a little heap of it. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, 
spleen, lungs, intestines, mesentery, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, nasal mucus, synovial fluid, and urine. So now you have 32 uh, heaps uh, in front of you. And so seeing these different parts in front of you, do you still identify with that as you or your body? <laughs> Most likely not. <laughs> but as soon as you take these 32 little heaps and put them together in a certain way and shape, and so then if it takes the form of a human being, then immediately you would identify again with it. Ah, my body, <laughs> that's me. So doing this reflection repeatedly over some period of time can help reduce our attachment to our body. So then we get the more realistic picture of what the body is and what it is made of. This does not diminish our appreciation of having a body or it does not mean that we neglect the basic care the body needs. Now let us go to the second group of approaches to deal with difficult forms of craving, desire or attachment. And this is diverting the mind from the original object. And so a first approach is simply to change the object. As soon as we become aware that the mind is stuck in an object, that causes strong desire or attachment to arise. And knowing from our previous experiences with that object that this is a very difficult one to deal with, we immediately change uh, the object. It's like, imagine that you grab a hot piece of charcoal. You would immediately drop it, wouldn't you? And so, likewise, you immediately drop that object and consciously bring the mind to another object, one that is uh, neutral or one that you know usually brings about a wholesome state of mind, happiness or joy to arise. And so, Realizing that it's a certain object, there is strong desire, very strong attachment. Uh, 
we simply can drop that object and bring the mind back to the experience of the breath, be that the rising and falling of the abdomen, or be that the sensation of the air at the nostril going in and out. Or we simply can bring the mind to a distinct touching sensation in any part of the body. Or we can change the object and uh, do metta meditation, for example. Or it can be any of the other Brahma Viharas, Karuna, compassion, or Mudita, sympathetic joy, or um, Upeka, equanimity. Or it could be uh, changing to Anapanasati, or could be uh, reflecting on the attributes of the Buddha. So whatever seems uh, suitable to you, whatever your mind is familiar with, uh, uh, ob an object that does not uh, cause desire or attachment to arise, rather that causes a wholesome state of mind to arise. Drop that other object and change uh, to that to a more wholesome one. Another way to deal with strong forms of greed or attachment is determination. And two weeks ago in my talk, I spoke about determination. A strong pull or craving can be countered by a strong resolve. Because simply to have a good intention to, risk the pull, to resist the pull of desire or attachment might not be uh, working because that's too weak. And so we need to resort to a strong resolve that has more power, uh, more strength. So if we want, um, or if we have to deal with strong, strong desire, regarding a certain thing. This can be food or clothes, uh, going for a walk. So then we simply can determine that we won't uh, engage in that thing for a day or a week or a month, whatever. And so once we have made this resolve, uh, we, we simply stick to it, we keep it. and. So then we notice that even when the desire arises, it dissolves uh, much quicker or it arises less frequently. Because when we have made this heartfelt resolve, there is no point in arguing. And so the mind lets go of it more quickly and more easily. Sometimes our thoughts of desire, craving, and attachment are triggered by certain objects or persons or situations. And so if it has become obvious that the particular object, a certain person, a certain situation, 
uh, triggers desire or wanting each time uh, we see it, then we simply can try to avoid the encounter with that object, person or situation. So to go out of the way. For example, if the smell from the kitchen uh, triggers fantasies about food while doing your walking meditation in the dining hall or outside there on the deck, you simply can avoid doing your walking meditation near the kitchen. Choose a place for your walking meditation that is far away from the kitchen. Or something that would apply uh, to your daily life. If you cannot resist the strong temptation for that delicious ice cream that they sell, sell at the corner of Craving Street and Indulgence Avenue, simply avoid that part of town. <laughs> Don't drive past there. So as you have seen earlier, nothing can be called me, mine, or belonging to a self. However, based on our deeply rooted delusion, we, we regard material objects, our body and our mind, mind as me, or mine, or belonging to a self. And with this notion of me or mine, we almost immediately become attached to all sorts of things, animate and inanimate. We desire possessions, we crave for sensual pleasures, or we cling to blissful states of mind, or we want things to be different. So instead of craving for things and become attached to them, we need to abandon this desire, craving and attachment. In this talk I've pointed out a few ways of how we can deal with desire, craving and attachment. And to end this talk I would like um, to share these words from the Buddha. He said, Whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.